Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. It's Christmas time, and last week I started talking about the cross because even though we generally think of the cross in terms of Easter, it's the, it's the greatest gift. The cross and the resurrection are the greatest gift Jesus could ever have given us, God could ever have given us. And so I think it's appropriate, entirely appropriate, uh, of course, to talk about the cross and the resurrection year-round, but I think it's very appropriate to speak about it at Christmas. And, uh, and of course... The main thing, you know, when we think of the cross, we think of forgiveness, as Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, in him, that's Jesus, thanks to the cross, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What an absolutely beautiful truth, that because of the cross, uh, you and I, no matter the shameful things we've done in our past, and all of us have done shameful things. All of us have done wicked and terrible things we regret, but because of the cross, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, and we are forgiven. We get a fresh start. We don't have to walk through life with condemnation, okay? And that is such a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful gift. Um, But the amazing thing, as I started talking about last week, is there's even more to the cross than just that. I mean, if all Jesus did for us at the cross was was buy us forgiveness, that would be amazing in and of itself. But as we read through the Gospels and as we read through the New Testament, we actually see that the cross did even much more than just buy us forgiveness. And, uh, and so last week, at the end of the message, we saw how the gospel stories, actually the, the story of the crucifixion in the four gospels, really centers around this idea of Passover, that somehow at the cross, Jesus wasn't just forgiving us, he was, he was delivering us, okay? He was, it was a, it's, a, it's a new Passover, it's a new exodus, we're being delivered. And we see this in John chapter 12, where we're going to pick up this message uh, here today, is Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I was going to say in the Garden of Eden, but that's a different garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he is wrestling with dread over what he has to go through, and he says this, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So here he is, my soul is troubled. Okay, he's dreading what he has to go through. Okay, and now he's going to go on and talk about why he has to go through it. Okay, why does he have to go through this thing that he dreads so much? And interestingly to me, he leaves out in this passage, in many other passages, the Bible talks about the forgiveness part, but in this passage, he focuses on something else. And this is where I think as as Western Christians, we have to pick up on some of these other themes that we sometimes leave out. And Jesus says this in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So he says, this is the purpose why I came is for this hour, this moment of crucifixion. And why is it that this has to happen is that there is a ruler of this world that has to be cast out. Now that in and of itself, you know, there's so many passages of scripture. I I feel like we just kind of glaze over them. We just read past them. We don't think about them deeply sometimes. And we, we miss the significance. The fact that Jesus, who is king of the universe, would say, I have to go through something terrible in, over, in order to overthrow the ruler of the world. What on earth is going on there? Isn't Jesus the ruler of the world? So Jesus is stating here that there is some kind of evil, controlling, oppressive power that has some kind of authority. Now, I want to just take a, a quick time out because it's exactly when you start to look at passages like this, 
that people can get all kinds of weird ideas, right? Uh, what does it mean that, you know, Satan, that there's this evil power that is ruling over the, the world? Does that mean that God has, you know, up until the cross, God wasn't sovereign over the world, that God wasn't actually ruling over his universe? And of course, the answer to that is no. The Old Testament is very, very clear throughout the entire Old Testament, the entire Bible, in fact, that God has always been sovereign over the entire earth, including over any evil powers, okay? So for example, in the book of Job, when Satan uh, wants to do something bad to Job, what does he have to do first? What does he have to do first? He has to ask God for what? Permission, right? So God, it's very clear in the Old Testament that God has always been in charge, even before the cross. There was never a moment when God wasn't ultimately ruling on his throne. I want to read you one passage from 1 Chronicles 29, just to make this, this certain for you. Okay, 1 Chronicles 29, I want to make sure that when we talk about Satan having this kind of power, this authority, that we make sure we understand where that authority ranks. But 1 Chronicles 29, David prays this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer, one of the most, uh, you know, explicit affirmations of God's sovereignty and beautifully written in the scriptures. It says this, yours, O Lord, David says to God, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is whose? Yours. Okay, David clearly says here, everything in the world at all times, since creation, after Adam and Eve sinned, before the cross, after the cross, God has always, everything has always belonged to him. He has, he's, nobody has ever been in charge of him. He's never owed anybody anything. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor, he says in verse 12, come from you and you rule over all. He says it again, in your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. So let's just keep this in mind. God has always been king. He's always been sovereign. Everything has always belonged to him. Nothing has ever belonged to the devil. And yet, okay, so now that we have that in our minds, God's on the top, always has been, never lost that position, People sinning does not make God lower than Satan, okay? God has always been above. God has always been at the top. But somehow, yet we find Jesus at the, in the Garden of Gethsemane troubled because he has to go through, this, through the cross. It's, it's, gonna, it's, it's daunting. It's, it's scary. It's awful what he has to go through. And he says that the reason he has to go through it is he's got to defeat the ruler of the world. So underneath God's sovereign power, there is this evil power that has authority, not in the sense of authority over God, but somehow has authority over human beings. And so for human beings' sake, Jesus has to overthrow him, not in terms of for God's sake, because God's already over Satan, but for human sake. So we find this interesting conversation, just to, just to kind of look at this a little bit further. Luke chapter four, we have this like really fascinating, like there's a lot of fascinating stuff in the scripture, but this is a really fascinating conversation, a conversation between Satan and Jesus. And this is one of those, you know, where, it, it, you know, in heaven, I really want to see video, like a, please, what did this look like when Satan and Jesus have a conversation? Okay, and, uh, and here's, we get a snippet of the conversation. You know, the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. In verse five, the devil took him, that's Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory. So, whoa, 
Again, the devil has some kind of authority, and yet the Bible affirms that God owns everything. So again, uh, Satan cannot give something to God that God already owns. So when we're talking about this authority, he must be talking about authority again in, over the nations in terms of some kind of authority and ruling over human beings. Like somehow human beings have given him authority because he doesn't own something. God could just say, that's mine. But somehow human beings, it's human beings that are at issue here, not the world itself. It's human beings. And Satan has some kind of authority, and he actually offers it to Jesus. Now, the next statement is also very interesting, for it has been delivered to me. And uh, for it has been delivered to me. He wasn't created with this power over people. Somehow, this power was given to him over people, and I give it to whom I will. Okay? So Satan has, underneath God, the world belongs to God, okay? But underneath that, Satan has gotten some kind of authority and power over people. Now, what does his power consist of? How does Satan get this power? And I want to look at just three things. And of course, there's always going to be some mystery here. Okay? There's always going to be a little mystery. We're never going to know everything behind the scenes until Jesus returns to earth and sets up his kingdom. But there are things we can find in Scripture and so we can, I, I just want to identify three things in this message, because, and then we can look at the cross and how, why Jesus had to go through the cross and how the cross breaks these things. Because Jesus said, it's for this purpose I've come to go through the cross, this painful thing, so that I can cast down the ruler of the world. So where does pa Satan's power come from? Three things we'll look at. First of all, his power comes, it, par, the power of, from accusation, sorry, the power of accusation, Okay. Um, and let me explain what that means. First of all, the word Satan is, it, it, technically, it's not like a proper name like Charles or Bill, okay? It, it actually just, now, it's become a proper name, and, and names can do that, but originally, it's just a word that means accuser. That's actually what it means, accuser or adversary, okay? And in fact, in the New Testament, in Revelation 12, uh, John actually makes that explicit, saying Satan, the accuser, is the accuser of the brethren, okay? So it's, it's, it's almost like he, it's this personalized form of, of a role, and the role is sort of the role of accuser. Now, here's the thing, um, you know, it, when you do something wrong, and the law says that you have to be punished, if someone else knows about what you've done, isn't it true that they get some power over you? Uh, I mean, this happens in the movies all the time. I don't know if it actually happens. Well, I'm sure it happens in real life too. But I mean, that's what blackmail is, right? Like, you know, two people do something that's not right. And now one person, or maybe they're having an affair, or maybe they've been involved in some kind of criminal activity. And now one person wants to pull out. And the other person is like, no, no, you can't stop now. Because if you do, I'll tell. Isn't that true? And by the fact that you have done something wrong, when someone else finds out about it, or if you go to court, the prosecutor has power over you, the power of accusation. And the devil is the accuser of the brethren. So constantly, he says to God, you can't, I mean, he's the one right there with God saying, you can't let them off the hook. I know you're merciful, I know you're gracious, I know you're loving, but you cannot let human beings, you can't let that person, that person, or human beings in general, you cannot let them off the hook because your law says that there's a penalty for doing wicked things. 
And so part of his power, Satan means accuser. Part of his power is out of accusation. We've done wrong, and as a result, he has a power over us. Ever since Adam sinned, Satan got leverage over human beings. And he got this power of accusation. You know, when Adam sinned, you know, Satan's right there. First of all, Satan, and he, he, you know, he's, he's there telling Adam, you got to sin, you got to sin, you got to, you know, you got to eat the fruit, eat the fruit. It won't be bad. It's really good. The moment Adam does, he's running off to God and saying, you can't let him off the hook now. You can't let him off the hook now. Now you said in the day you eat of it, you will die. Now you must let the process of death into creation. He's the accuser. He has power through accusation. Okay. A uh, second way that, pow- that Satan gets power is he gets power through our enslavement to sin. And many, again, many, uh, we could look at many, many passages in each of these points. I'll just show one to you. You know, Romans 6.16 says this. Paul says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Okay? You become a slave of whatever it is that you obey. And by the way, uh, science now confirms this. I'm always fascinated when science confirms things that, that you know, biblical writers wrote without having any concept of modern science as we know it today. But brain science tells us that this is absolutely true. Every time you make a choice and then you repeat that choice and you repeat that choice, you actually create pathways in your brain, literally uh, pathways of neurons and the way they fire. This is how your brain works. This is why you, you can go on to automatic for all kinds of things because you've got shortcuts in your brain and it actually saves you a lot of energy. If you had to rethink, how do I drive every time you drive? That'd be a disaster. If you had to rethink, how do I walk? If you had to figure that out like a baby every time you, you stood up, That'd be terrible. So your brain makes shortcuts so that you can very easily, so the more you do something, you get this rut in your brain of this pathway becomes easier and easier to follow. Now that can also be for, it can be for good and it can be for bad. So uh, we know now, I mean, they've done brain scans. Any of you who took the Conquer course there a couple of years ago, uh, they talk about this in that course, but they've done brain scans, for example, of men and women who have had, you know, uh, you know, addictions to pornography for a number of years. And when you actually scan their brain, people who've had uh, severe addictions to pornography, the scan of the brain looks exactly like someone who's had a cocaine addiction for many years. And the parts of the brain that are for saying no and self-control have actually become atrophied. They're almost non-existent. Uh, literally what has happened, and the parts that can only just give in to the temptation and become extremely strong, literally, physiologically, the person has become a slave to their sins. And so there's a power in that, right? There's a power that Satan has over us. And notice that, like, notice how complicated this gets, by the way. Because I, I think sometimes people think, like, why it's so complicated with the cross? Like, if, if the devil needs to be overthrown, why not just tie him up and throw him in a pit? Which, by the way, Jesus is going to do when he returns someday. Amen, right? That's great. But that's a top-down solution. And the problem is, if we've given Satan power... By choosing these things, by choosing his kingdom, by choosing his temptations, then just tying him up, 
actually doesn't take away his power because we can continue to worship and follow him even when he's tied up. So God has to solve this from the inside out. It also complicates it in the sense of, of God wants to, needs to solve, wants and needs, but wants to solve humanity's problem without taking away our humanity. And let me explain it this way, okay? And this is, again, why Jesus, you know, is dreading the cross, but he has to go through it. There is not another way to do this. But think of it this way. A person who, for example, I've often prayed with people in my office who have some kind of sin issue that is difficult to get rid of. So, for example, a person might come in and a pastor, you know, one of us might pray with a person who says, I've got a really bad anger problem. And sometimes what people will say to us pastors is, I just wish, in fact, I've, not just some, I've heard this many times from people, whether it be a lust problem or an anger problem or some kind of other problem, they'll say, I wish God would just take the problem away from me. Like, why? I've had people literally sit in my office and say, why can't God just take it away? But have you ever stopped to think, what would that mean for God to just, for example, take your anger problem away? How would he do that? Well, I'll tell you one way he could do it. He could just cut out the part of your brain that has anything to do with emotion and passion. To the side, presto, is that what you want? You now no longer have an anger problem. Your problem is solved. You've lost a big part of your humanity. He can solve your problems by making you a robot, right? But the fact of the matter is, the reason you have an anger problem is not God just taking out your emotions. So now, oh, I'm a robot. I don't have an anger problem anymore. God doesn't want that because he made you to be in his image and we are to reflect his image. So making us less human is not an option for God. And what's happened with your anger problem or your lust problem is not that something bad has been introduced into your brain. It's that something good has been warped. And so God has to fix it from the inside out. But that warpedness has given Satan power. So in order to overcome Satan, he can't just tie Satan up. He's got to somehow fix it from the human side. He can't just fix it from the top down. He's got to fix it from the inside out. And that will be important in the New Testament story about this too. But there's one third, uh, and we're going to look at some of those things in just a moment, but there's a third way that, power, that, that Satan gets power over us. And it is through death. And there's, you know, I don't know how to explain this in terms of scientifically, but the, the New Testament is very clear that somehow death and Satan's power are linked. And the New Testament writers wrestle with this in different ways. Throughout the New Testament, over and over again, you'll see them wrestling with this, that somehow sin and death and Satan are somehow all linked. And if you're going to break the power of death, you, well, let me just show you a passage first before I talk on and on about it. Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 14, 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. By the way, I just want to stop you for just a moment before we get to the death Satan part. Um, this is really important. The fact that Jesus had to identify with us, he had to flesh and blood because we're physical, physical brain, physical heart, physical body, skeleton, all that sort of stuff. Because we are physical, Jesus had to become physical to fix this problem. That goes back to the inside-out thing. He's, he can't just fix it from the outside in. He, he made us to be human, and he doesn't want to take away from our humanness by just taking out our brain, because he could just take out our entire brain, and there's no more sin problem. 
So he has to become human and he has to solve this as a, as a human being. That's really important, okay? But then it goes on to say this, very interesting thing. Another one of those statements I think that we just kind of glaze over off when we read, we don't think about it, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, fascinating statement to make. Now, before we go any further, let's just pause again and let's just say here what, we do, what the writer of Hebrews cannot mean by this. Um, because that might be scary. Some people might take that line out of this church service and do all kinds of weird things with it. What does that mean when the writer of Hebrews says that the devil has the power of death? So let me just first explain what that does not mean. It does not mean that the devil decides when you die. Aren't you glad? The devil does not have the power of death in the sense of he determines how long your life is. And I could do a whole, you know, another message about that. We could look at a whole weight of scripture that shows that God numbers our days. And God has a plan for your life. And God has numbered your days. And nobody can kill you or you can't die until God's done. Okay? Um, But anyway, that's the sovereignty of God, again, above Satan. And yet we see here in this passage, and we don't know exactly how it works in a scientific sense, but in some way, as long as there is death on the earth, Satan will have power. And as long as Satan has power, there will be death. They are linked. Okay? So Jesus, and it's only through conquering death you can conquer the devil. Now, the question is then, how do you conquer death, right? Because, again, that's a complicated question. How do you conquer death? Death is not a thing. It's not a person that you can, you know, just go grab it and choke it. Oh, I could conquer death. You know, if only death was just the grim reaper, then Jesus could just take death and be done with him, okay? But death isn't a thing you can conquer like that. It's something that happens to us. So how do you conquer death? It's not, it's not even a force. It's just something that happens. How do you con- It's a process that has been unleashed in the earth, and you have to conquer that thing to conquer Satan because somehow the two are tied together. So how do you conquer death? Well, first of all, uh, the best way to do it would be you die, like you'd let death happen to you, and then you would rise from the grave. That would do it, wouldn't it? Um, and in fact, this is what the New Testament does argue, because it's, it's like a reversal of process. You have to actually reverse the process, okay? And I'm going to show you Romans 5. This is exactly what Paul is going to argue, okay? But basically what Paul is going to argue in Romans 5 is this, that one man unleashed death onto the earth, and if that's true, then it's possible for one man to reverse the process and unleash life onto the earth. And so it starts with Adam. You've got one man, and he's made without sin. He's cre- when he's created, he's not created sinful. He's created clean. So you have a sinless man, Adam, who then chooses to disobey. He sins, and thereby unleashes death on the human race. So in order to reverse that process now, what Paul's going to argue is that if we take this thing from the back and then come forward, if you have a man who doesn't just start out clean, but finishes clean, who then dies in obedience to God, and then rises from the grave, thus conquering death, he'll do the opposite of what Adam did, and he will unleash life onto the earth. 
And so this is Paul's argument in Romans 5, okay? So he says this, starting in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, so one man unleashed death on everyone, okay? This is Paul's reasoning. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. So again, Paul's arguing here, if it works one way, it has to work the other way. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay? Therefore, verse 18, as one trespass, that's Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's Jesus dying on the cross, leads to justification in life for all men. Now, we just kind of take this for granted because it happened 2,000 years ago, and many of us have grown up in a Christian home, and so for those of us who just grew up in a Christian home and kind of knew this story from the beginning, it just, it doesn't seem that revolutionary because we just grew up with that. Well, that's obvious. Like, obviously, if God would just take on human flesh and die and rise from the grave, problem solved. Hindsight is so wonderful when you're raised with it, right? But thing you have to understand is nobody saw this coming beforehand. Zero. Zero people saw in advance. All you could see was the problem. Satan thinks he's basically one. That's why he's so confident to offer Jesus. He knows he doesn't own the world per se, but he knows he owns the hearts of men in a sense. He has authority over men and he offers to Jesus, I'll give it to you if you'll worship me, knowing that if Jesus tries to take that authority from him in the wrong way, he's going to keep it forever. Satan thinks, once I got Adam to sin and unleash death on the earth, how do you undo that? You could tie me up, God, but you're not going to beat me because I'll still have them. But nobody foresaw that the lengths that God would go to that he would take on flesh and live a human, fully human life for over 30 years here on earth, then allow himself to be killed, completely unthinkable, and then as a human being to rise from the grave, nobody saw that, thus reversing the process that had started in the garden, which is why then Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.8. I love this statement. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they... Again, notice, who killed Jesus? Okay? The rulers, the evil forces. It was a terrible, wicked sin to kill Jesus. Okay? Now, Jesus was in control the whole time in the sense that he let it happen. He knew it was going to happen. It was part of his plan all along to redeem mankind. But Satan was behind the whole thing. And if he had understood that he was going to reverse the very thing he got started in, in the Garden of Eden... He wouldn't have done it. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory because he reversed what he'd been trying to accomplish all along. By the way, I just, I want to affirm again. I just want to affirm. Somebody's, you just got to make some of these affirmations because it's so easy to go one way or the other. I want to affirm that Jesus is more powerful than Satan. We're not saying here at all, you know, Paul's not saying, when he says they killed, you know, Jesus. He's not saying that Satan is more powerful than Jesus. Uh, right? John chapter 10, Jesus says this, for this reason, the father loves me because what I, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Notice this, no one takes it from me. Like, I mean, Satan has no chance against Jesus. Jesus walks in there as a lamb and lets evil people under the inspiration of Satan take his life. 
so that he can pay for their sins and undo everything Satan has done. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. But now you have to see something, uh, and we're going to go into the Gospels again, but you have to see Satan's close participation in both of these events. In the Garden of Eden, he's right there at the beginning. Right at the beginning, we've got Adam and Eve. Everything is nice, but there's a serpent in the garden. And he says to Adam and Eve, did God really say? Because God said, in the day you eat of it, you'll die. He knows that if they, he knows that what God said is right. And he knows that if they die, he's going to get power. He's going to get leverage over the human race because his power is tied to death. So he's right there at the beginning and he's tempting Adam and Eve. And the moment they sin, he's like, got it. And from that moment, he's got thousands of years of ruling over the nations. He's got leverage over humanity through accusation and death and the enslavement to sin. He's got power. And now Jesus shows up and Satan is involved again because he knows, he can see that Jesus is the Messiah. Now he has no idea how Jesus is going to undo him because the ways of Jesus' kingdom are so much higher than Satan's ways or our ways. And so he, in a sense, in his rage, maybe panic, decides, I'm going to kill. I started this thing in the garden. I know this Jesus is the Messiah. He's here to do something. I've got to put an end to this so he doesn't undo what I started in the garden. So he's going to kill him. And you have to see this in the Gospels, this dark undercurrent around the crucifixion story of Satan's involvement in everything that's going on. And we're just going to read, I'm going to read you a few passages here in Luke chapter 22. And I just want to show you all the different places where Satan pops up. It starts in verse 3. This is the Passover supper. The day before the Passover when Jesus is going to be crucified. And uh, it starts uh, like this. Then Satan entered into Judas. Now it's not God the Father entering into Judas and saying, I want you to kill my son. It's Satan who hates Jesus and wants him dead. Enters into Judas called Iscariot. Okay. And uh, who's the number of the 12? He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. But it's not just Judas. It's interesting. Sometimes we break up some of these stories. But if you read the same chapter, just a number of verses later, verse 31, we see Satan at work again. Verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. There he is again. Here we are right at the Passover supper and Satan keeps popping up, demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Satan is working in Judas. He's working in Peter. He's probably working at all the disciples. He's inciting the religious leaders. He's the one who's inciting hatred, those Roman soldiers. He's cheering them on. We go a little further into the Garden of Gethsemane, same chapter. Jesus says this, when the chief priests and officers come to arrest him, then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This hour, this is an evil hour. Now, it's hard for me even to say that because I know a lot of Christians, no, 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 the cross was a wonderful hour. Well, yes, it was turned for good. But the cross itself was this moment of a terrible thing being done. An innocent man, more than that, God himself in a flesh, being tortured and killed, wicked and evil act. Just a vile act. Now, amazing, thankfully for us, that Jesus went through it. 
Because it's exactly there. Satan thinks he's putting an end, that there's some kind of threat here in Jesus that's going to threaten what's happening at the Garden of Eden. So he's going to put an end to Jesus, and he thinks he's winning by doing that. But in actually killing Jesus, he's actually done the very thing he's trying to stop, which is undo everything from Genesis 1 on. And we read, Paul says it this way in Colossians 2, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So at the cross, the very thing that looked like Jesus was losing was the very thing where Jesus was winning. And it says there, I love that line, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. How did he disarm them on the cross? Well, we looked at where does Satan get his power from? The first one was accusation. Look what happened at the cross to Satan's power of accusation. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. A big part of Satan's power came from accusation. He could constantly go to God and say, you can't let them off, you can't let them off, you can't let them off, you cannot let them off, okay? But by killing Jesus, an innocent victim, he just stepped over the bounds. And now God looks at him and says, uh, actually, thank you. By killing an innocent victim, now that penalty has been paid. And God looks at all the stuff, all the stuff that Satan held over humanity, that long list, and all of its legal demands, and the fact that the law does say these things are wicked. And now God looks and says, actually, when Jesus got nailed to the cross, we just nailed that whole list of things. Oh, you wanted to accuse Bob of that? It's there on the cross, too. That one's on the cross. That one's on the cross. It's all on the cross. It's been nailed to the cross. Now Satan is, one of his big teeth has been ripped out. And that other big tooth he had, which was death, got ripped out the moment Jesus stood up from the grave. So he's actually been disarmed. He doesn't have authority. He had authority and power, okay? And he continues to have until the, the final consummation, when Jesus comes and conquers the kingdoms of this world and ties them up, he'll continue to have power over people so long as they don't go to the cross. But the moment you put your faith in Jesus, he ceases to have any power over you unless you give him some. Which brings us then to, finally in these last couple of minutes here, what does this mean for our life? Well, we could do a whole series And there's lots of things that this means for our lives. But let me just, this Christmas, finish this message with two things. What does this mean for our lives? Two things for how we should live. First of all, experience the power of forgiveness afresh today. And the way you do that is through confession and repentance. That's how you experience it afresh today. The only way Satan can have power over you now as a believer in Jesus Christ is when you have hidden sin that you're ashamed of, and then he beats you over the head with it over and over again, condemn, 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 and he's beating you with something that you're allowing him to beat you with. Christians, if you have hidden sin in your life, whatever it is, whether it be something from the distant past, abuse, affair, adultery, whatever it is, something hidden in your present now, 
Don't let Satan beat you with something that's supposed to be nailed to the cross. Bring it out into the open. Tell some trusted people, this is what I did. You said, I'm too embarrassed. What would you rather be, embarrassed or enslaved? I'd rather be a little embarrassed. I'd rather fess up and get healing. So tell some trusted people, if you hurt someone else, go back and confess it with them, to them. Make it right and experience afresh. And Christian, if you have done that already and you're feeling condemnation, you need to go back to these passages and pray them. And you need to pray them with other people and say, Lord Jesus, I want the reality of what happened to my debt and the accusations against me to finally catch up with my emotions because I don't need to feel condemned anymore either. And then the second thing is this. Because the moment Jesus rose from the grave, and I'd love to do a whole message on this, the, 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 and I had to take it out because it just was taking too much time, but in Acts, the, the early Christians and the disciples were preaching this revolutionary me- message that because Jesus rose from the grave, the kingdom had broken into the earth already now. It hasn't been consummated. It's not done yet. There's still sin and death in the, earth, in the world, but the moment Jesus rose from the grave, he started a process of life that his kingdom has broken into the earth now. It's on the earth now through us, and we are to take his kingdom everywhere we go. We're to take his kingdom. If you are a trucker, you take the kingdom of God with you onto the road. If you're in the schools, you take it into the hallway in your schools. We're to take the kingdom of God into our homes, our living rooms, our kitchens, our bedrooms. We're to take the kingdom of God with us everywhere we go. Now the question is, how do I take the kingdom of God with me? Does that mean I'm, everywhere I go, I'm specifically consciously speaking out loud the name of Jesus? Well, yes, and witnessing, sure, that's a great thing. Does it mean everywhere I go, I'm stopping to get on my knees and formally pray? Well, sure, praying is awesome. Praying is, is central. We need it in our lives, absolutely. But, but no, it's much bigger than that. Advancing the kingdom of God isn't just about doing some spiritual disciplines or witnessing or those sorts of things, as important as they are, and they are important, and we need to do them. But bringing the kingdom of God everywhere we go into everything we do means actually advancing Jesus' kingdom by way of the cross. The same way that Jesus overcame the powers of darkness is the same way we are to overcome the powers of darkness in our lives today, which is why Jesus said to the disciples, pick up your what? Cross daily and follow me. Now, here's the thing. If you're anything like me, and hopefully you are smarter than me in so many ways, But if you're anything like me, you have taken that verse, pick up your cross daily, and done something weird with it for many years of your life. I always thought pick up your cross daily and follow me meant do hard things for Jesus. And certainly that might be included in following Jesus. But my interpretation of that verse was Jesus is saying, in order to follow me, pick up your cross daily means every day get up and do hard things for me. Do lots of spiritual disciplines, and they're important, and we need to do them, but do lots and lots and lots of them, and do lots of this, and say no to, you know, to having too much fun or enjoying. So pick up your cross daily. The Christian life is supposed to be hard, but that's actually not what picking up your cross daily means, even though following Jesus will sometimes mean doing hard things. But Jesus is not telling us, go out and just do hard things. That's how you advance my kingdom. You know what pick up your cross daily means? 
It means overcoming evil the way Jesus overcame it at the cross. How did Jesus overcome evil at the cross? Did he overcome evil with evil? Or did he overcome evil with good? As he's on the cross and they're nailing him to the cross, these wicked people doing something absolutely evil and wicked, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's actually picking up your cross. Picking up your cross means advancing Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' way. It means loving those as Christians, we love those who hate us. It's actually a blessing to bless those who do bad things to us. As Christians, we would way rather turn the other cheek and absorb evil and forgive it rather than give back evil for evil. We give back good when we receive evil. We give back blessing when we receive hurt. We would never, we don't want to hold on to bitterness or offense or any of those things because that's not the way of the cross. Now you say, yeah, but if I do things that way, I am going to suffer. Just like Jesus suffered. But it's not suffering just because you're randomly doing hard things. You're suffering because you're overcoming evil. And you say, if I do that, see, as Christians, we don't win by numbers. It's not like, oh, as, as the church gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, that's how we're winning. No. I mean, yes, if more and more people are becoming Christ-like, yes, but just numbers doesn't win. We win in many cases when it looks like we're losing. And in your life, there are situations in your life right now where if you turn the other cheek and forgive and let go of bitterness, it might look to the world like you're being an idiot. It might look like you're being weak and it might look like you're losing the same things the devil thought of Jesus on the cross. But it's actually in that moment when everybody thinks you're losing that the kingdom of God is most advancing. So I want you to bow your heads with me and I want you to close your eyes. And I want us just to think, we're going to go into a song and we're going to worship. But I want to just give the Holy Spirit a moment to speak if he wants. If there's anybody here this morning and you have hidden sin in your life, today's the day. Go home today and tell someone. Start dealing with it. Something from your past, dig it up, deal with it, and get that thing nailed to the cross where the devil can't hold it over you any longer. Maybe it's not hidden sin for you. Maybe it's just it's time to pick up your cross. Which doesn't mean doing a whole bunch of new things for Jesus. What it means is picking up your cross. Where is Jesus telling you to forgive? Where is Jesus telling you to reach across to someone who has hated you and hurt you and it's time for you to bless and love them? Lord Jesus, would you help us to become people who truly reflect who you are?